I'm pleased to introduce you to Angie Kim. Angie's debut novel, Miracle Creek, was named Best Book of the Year by Time, The Washington Post, Kirkus, and The Today Show, and went on to win many other prizes. Before writing Miracle Creek, Angie was the former editor of the Harvard Law Review, a trial attorney, and has written for Vogue, the New York Times Book Review, the Washington Post, Glamour, and numerous literary journals. In her fifth career, it was when she began writing about her life experiences that her calling emerged. As you can imagine, a conversation with Angie is far and reaching. We discuss things such as life as a Korean immigrant, hyperbaric chambers, the power of your subconscious in writing, and the myth of the good mother. Enjoy the listen. Angie, welcome to About Your Mother, Where Your Story Begins. It's an absolute honor to have you today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. You are welcome. So since this is About Your Mother, Where Your Story Begins, let's begin with a reflection on your mom and tell us what did you learn from her? You know, I've learned so much from her. I think one of the things that I've learned the most from her is just the idea that it's so important to be generous and kind to other people. She was a businesswoman here in the United States. Back in Korea, I only experienced her in the home as my, you know, stay-at-home mom. And in the U.S., she really ran the grocery store. So we came over from Korea to the U.S. to the Baltimore area when I was 11 and I'm an only child. And my parents bought a grocery store that was in a very dangerous part of Baltimore, of downtown Baltimore. And, you know, and she and my dad, they spoke English the same way that like I might speak French having taken French in high school and like a year in college, that type of thing. But even with that, I got to observe her with her customers a couple of times. They didn't like me coming to the store too much because it was so dangerous. There was like a thick inch bulletproof glass all surrounding the entire store so that they were sort of like separated from, you know, the outside world and protected. But even with that, they still didn't like that environment. But I did get to go and see them a couple of times. And I was just floored by how generous and kind she was with her customers, even sort of the cantankerous ones. She was just so kind to everyone and everyone loved her as a result. And because of that, I think she just, people would come to the grocery store where things are much more expensive, you know, in the corner grocery store than like say a supermarket, but they would just come every day just to like see her and just because they befriended her. And I feel like that idea of being kind to other people and generous with other people and that really helping your business relationships is such an important thing that I sort of learned by observing her from afar. And I hope that I've been able to try to do a little bit of that in my own professional relationships with people. I think whenever I hear people say, oh, you're so generous with your time or anything like that, it just sort of reminds me of how I learned that that's an important thing to do from my mom. 
Oh, well, I guess I can thank her for having your time today on the podcast. Oh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Well, I would have done that anyway, because it's just <laughs> so fun. And I love your podcast. I love podcasts in general. So yeah, no, this is great. They thank are you. all fun. <laughs> they yeah. are. They're, uh, they're wonderful. I love them. They're just a blast. It, well, it's just, you know, I think conversations just connect us. And we have so much to talk about because you are so dynamic in so many ways. I do. I am curious. How did your parents pick Baltimore and a grocery store? Do you know how that happened? Yeah. Well, absolutely. So it wasn't really a choice. Baltimore was because my aunt, my mom's sister, my mom is one of seven brothers and sisters. And my aunt, Helen, is her closest friend, like in the entire world. And she actually came to America first. I was maybe three or four. She came under the visa, the work visa. She was an RN and she worked as a registered nurse at Johns Hopkins. And so that's how she came over to the U.S. And given that we were being sponsored by her and invited by her, you know, Baltimore was sort of the natural place where we ended up. And then as far as the grocery store, I think it was sort of like one of these things that you talk to the community of other immigrants from your country that you can speak with, that you're comfortable with. And they sort of say, hey, this is a good field to go into for people in our situation. That situation being somebody who is well-educated, but whose education doesn't really get you very far in the U.S. And so I think my mom wanted to do something that would produce money right away and sort of provide cash flow. Also didn't need like English skills in the same way that a lot of other jobs would. For all of those reasons, I think, you know, you gravitate towards things like the grocery stores or the dry cleaners or liquor stores. And those retail types of businesses, I think, are very popular with immigrants for a reason. And so they did that. My dad actually sort of did try being like a welder, for example. I remember he got burns and he worked like triple overtime and it was just really a hard, hard life. And so I think he decided that he should, because I think he, he wanted like another job to get things like health benefits and things like that. So he tried doing that and letting my mom do the grocery store by herself, but it just was too hard, just too dangerous. And also they never saw each other either. So it's all of those things combined together. It's really difficult being an immigrant in a country where you don't speak the language in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. And you write a lot about that. And I guess it's a good segue into your debut book, Miracle Creek. I mean, hello. Wow. (laughs) It's such a great read. And of course, I'm going to make my listeners read it. it. It's really, really brilliant. And so much of your Um, your personal experiences are morphed into the book. So can you tell us a little bit about that? How, not to mention you had a career previously as a trial attorney. So maybe walk us through your background and how you ended up writing this miraculous book. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so grateful that you read it and that it resonated with you, all of those things. Thank you so much. So yes, Miracle Creek is my debut novel. There are, you know, people say that you put a lot of yourself into your first books and you and I have talked about that offline. Yeah, absolutely. I know that you know that that's true and that's definitely the case for me as well. I put so many threads of my life, of my own life into this book, one of which is the whole immigrant thread. So there is 
a family, a Korean family who has immigrated to the U.S. in my novel, and they are the owners of something called the Miracle Submarine, which is a weird hyperbaric oxygen therapy chamber business. And it looks like a submarine. That's why it's called the Miracle Submarine. People go inside are sealed in tight. There's pressure that's exerted on the chamber and then pure oxygen that the patients inside breathe. And it's an experimental medical treatment for things like infertility, cerebral palsy, autism, all sorts of things. So this family, a lot of the things that they go through and the longing that they have to belong and to not feel like outsiders who are different And also sort of the conflicts that they have with each other because they have a teenage daughter who is basically me, (laughs) you know, and who is really upset being here because she was being made fun of in middle school and things like that and really wants to go back to Korea. So that was basically all of my own experiences that I gave to this family. So there's a lot of exploration of that. And then another facet of my life that's in this novel is that of me as a mother. So I have three boys, all teenagers this summer, um, 13 to 19. Oh, bless your heart. (laughs) Um, Yeah. yeah, yeah. Have another martini. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's very, very interesting. They are all fine now, but as babies, they all had medical issues and all different medical issues. And they're uh, thankfully, they're all resolved. But for a couple of years there, I was basically doing nonstop driving to different hospitals and special specialists and looking up differential diagnoses of these medical mysteries that nobody could figure out what was wrong with my kids, dealing with insurance companies and all sorts of, and, you know, looking into experimental treatments like the HBOT that I just discussed. So that aspect of my life is in this novel as well, is specifically the HBOT experience. And one of the things that the novel does is explore the lives of the patient families who are having to deal with all sorts of different conditions and, you know, sort of comparing their lives with each other, gaining closeness with each other, but also, you know, exploring more complex emotions like not only cooperation with each other, but also envy and guilt and shame and exploring those together and sometimes against each other. So all of that kind of stuff. So that's in there. That thread is in there. And then finally, the other thread that's in my novel is, just like you mentioned, uh, my first career. Being a writer is my fifth career. But my first job, really, my first profession was as a trial lawyer. And I hated being a lawyer, except the part when you're in the courtroom. I loved that part. You did. What was it about that? Because I can, being a lawyer seems very tedious and time consuming and just (sighs) like a drag sometimes, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I didn't really mind all of that. It's just, there was just so much like, when you're dealing with opposing counsel and things, there's just so much that you accuse each other of bad faith and all sorts of things that if I were the kind of person who could just sort of let that all go at the end of the day, I think I would have been much happier, but I can't. I'm not that kind of a person. I'm the kind of person who takes everything personally, even though I know that I shouldn't. 
And so it was just a very unpleasant way to live. But I loved being in the courtroom because there's a performative aspect to being in the courtroom that I love. I was an, in theater. I was an acting major in high school. And I love that. And I just loved the idea of performing and I love doing it itself. And there is that aspect when you're in the courtroom, you know, whether you're cross-examining a witness, you know, in a sort of theatrical way or thundering away and, and objecting or talking to the, or to the judge about what the story of the case is and you know, and really being a storyteller in so many ways. And so I loved that aspect of it. And if that were most of my job or even like a significant part of my job, I probably would still be there. But that's only like 5% of any <laughs> trial lawyer's job. And that's not uh, a big percentage. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. It's probably different for different people, but, you know, for the kind of law firm where I was and things like that, I decided basically that I wasn't happy and that I was going to leave. But what was great about writing this novel is that it takes place structured around a four-day murder trial. So Miracle Creek is the story of how this group of patients that came together one day in this miracle submarine, they're sealed inside for a treatment as always. And one day someone we think deliberately sets a fire by the oxygen chain tanks that are outside causing an explosion and an uncontrollable fire. And some people die. We immediately fast forward after the scene where all this happens. Uh, we immediately fast forward to year later when there's a four-day murder trial going on where the mother of the eight-year-old boy who was killed in this fire is on trial for murdering him because the theory being that she was just sick of taking care of him. And so she just sort of broke and she sabotaged the tank. With the four-day murder trial, what was great was just writing the scenes inside the trial. It was like being back in the courtroom for me, except that it was so much better because I could control what the witnesses <laughs> said. Exactly. And so it was really fun. And I really loved that experience of sort of going back and getting a little bit of a taste back of what it used to be, what it used to feel like. Yes. But you're in your domain. I love it. And, you know, we know writing is so much about scenes. And it, now it makes sense that you were in theater because you so captured, not only because you're a brilliant writer, but it, it felt like theater in there. You know, there was so much going on with the characters and the development. And I think it's really cool as I'm listening to you, everything, you're, this is your fifth career. And, <laughs> yeah. and look, you're not 90. <laughs> so you <laughs> a lot of things really quickly. But I think it's so cool that everything that you did in your life, all of your experiences led you to this book. And, right. and that, and that you wrote it and it's connected to you, but also obviously created by you. Right. So it's not memoir, it's novel, but no, it, definitely not. no yeah. but so much of your, your life brought you to this moment. And I think that's true with a lot of writers. Definitely. And also like so much of what you learn throughout all of your interactions with different people that all comes through in the kind of scenes that you want to create and the kinds of observations that you have about sort of nature and society and life and the world and your family and all sorts of things comes through in your writing, I think. Mm -hmm. The subconscious is so present. One thing that you said a while back is that you never wanted to be a writer. So what was yeah. it? 
when, when did that kind of click for you? And when did you know this was the book? So I did not want to be a writer. It's so funny to me to hear so many writer friends of mine say like, oh, I've been writing since I was five, all that kind of stuff. And because I never did. I never wanted to write. And I, in fact, I, my high school that I went to, it's a performing arts high school. And it actually has an amazing creative writing department. It's Interlocking Arts Academy. I actually did a masterclass there this past year. It never even once crossed my mind when I was in high school to even take a creative writing class because I just thought it was just the writer seems just like such a bizarre, they seem like bizarre people. Like who would want to just like sit there and write all day? It just seemed so boring. Of course, like I didn't really realize that being a lawyer is a lot of that is writing a, a different kind of writing, but still yeah. as well. And I think that it wasn't until I was, I had been a stay-at-home mom for about 10 years and uh, having had gone, having gone through all of the stuff with my kids and my medical journey, I was, I would be telling people about it, like at cocktail parties or whatever. And they'd be like, oh my God, it's so amazing. You need to write a book about that, you know, about like how to deal with insurance companies, even like it would be so helpful to other people. And I was like, yeah, you know, maybe I, maybe I should, like, I didn't really know what I would be doing next as far as the kind of career that I wanted to tackle next. And I didn't knew that I didn't want to like just stay at home for a while just because it was so difficult. Mm -hmm. I just thought that that was just so such a draining thing that I did for something like 10 years or maybe more than 10 years just by myself, you know, with my husband working and he was a litigator and he was like doing trials in the way and all sorts of things that I was just like, okay, I've got to actually like do something else also. And I wasn't sure what that was. And when I thought about being a writer, I thought that would be, I didn't think of, think about it as being a writer. I thought, okay, well maybe I'll write some stuff, you know, whatever that was. And it really came together for me one day when I was just having a really hard day, ended up actually writing instead of cleaning the house and like doing all the cooking and stuff like that, that I, you know, I should be doing when the kids are in bed and all that kind of stuff. And I just like opened up my laptop and I just started writing about what I was upset about. And it was just so cathartic. And I had never really experienced that through writing before. And I thought, huh, there's something here. And so I just started doing more of that. And then I thought, you know, maybe I can actually take some of the stuff and shape it into a piece that would maybe be helpful to other people and also be helpful for me in terms of sort of sorting out my feelings. You know how like a lot of people say, you know, I write to figure out what I think. It's that kind of that kind of writing. So I started with personal essays and I took classes like writing classes and I showed some of them to my husband and a lot of them had to do with our kids and their medical journeys. And my husband made the great point that, hey, this is so great, but these are not just your stories. They are our family stories. They are our kids' stories. And there's so little that I'm not sure that, you know, they can meaningfully consent to you writing about them, which I hadn't really thought about in terms of publishing and stuff. Because I, I hadn't been writing to like send them out to pu for publications, but he, he was. And he was like, so why not try fiction? 
And I was like, fiction, I don't know how to write fiction. And he was like, but some of these could be stories. They are stories. And so he really encouraged that. And I started taking short story classes in the same place, you know, in the uh, writer center in Bethesda, where I had taken some of these personal essay classes. And I just loved it. I loved it immediately. And I, it was just like I had been bopping around from career to career, job to job, like looking for that perfect combination of like sort of happiness in day-to-day life and sort of overall satisfaction. And I had never quite been able to find it, which is why I would quit and then I would go off to do something else. And all of a sudden with like writing fiction, it just sort of came together. And I was already in my forties when I started writing fiction, you know? Awesome. And Yeah. And then after, so I started writing fiction, short stories. I started submitting, I got them published. I entered contests. I won some, and that gave me enough confidence such that I felt like, okay, well maybe I can try the long form, the novel. And when I started thinking about the novel uh, and writing this this particular one, Miracle Creek, I thought that Miracle Creek was going to be my sort of practice novel, not my real novel. You know, like a lot of people say that their first novel that they attempted was just sort of their practice. You write it, you go, okay, that was bad. And then you put it away in a drawer and you never look at it again, but that gives you enough like practice such that you can move on and you can write your real first novel. Yep. Mine's in the basement. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's in a Tupperware bin in the basement and nobody's ever going to see it. (laughs) Right. And I thought that's what mine was going to be. So I had, and I actually had a sign up in my writing nook and it said in all caps, um, this is not a novel. And it was a, just, just a reminder to myself that since this is not going to be a real novel, okay. I can feel free to just experiment. I can explore. I can put in anything I want there. I have seven POV uh, point of view characters mm-hmm. that I write from in this novel, which many people will tell you is not advisable for a first novel. But I didn't really think I, I was just like the more the better, because then the more practice I get in figuring out different voices and trying out different voices, figuring out how they fit, all of that sort of stuff. So, yeah. you know, so that's sort of what how I approach this novel And I would say that I didn't realize that it was going to be, it was actually a novel until it was completely done. And I had been showing it to my writing group that I'm with, and they had been reading chapters all along. And once I was done with the end, I sort of like didn't give them last like five chapters or whatever, because I didn't want to, you know, take away the surprise of mystery. And I just sort of revised based on everybody's comments that I'd been getting all along. And then, which was like two and a half years or something. And then I gave them the whole novel in one fell swoop and asked them to read it and just give me feedback so I could learn. And they all said, you should really send this out. This is really good. And that's when I was like, could I? Like, could I possibly... And so I did. And so I gave it to like friends to read and they all were very encouraging. So then I sent out queries to agents. I got an agent and here we are. 
here we are. So if you told your younger self, you're going to write a thriller, you would have, you would have never comprehended that. Isn't that right, amazing? Right. I know. It's so fun. Yeah. No, there's no way. Right. The places we go and the places we land, it's just fascinating. Right. So right. fascinating. Again, a lot of your personal experiences are weaved into the book. So we've connected on this, that having children who have some health challenges can be really, really overwhelming. So that's kind of initially where you wrote, you have this beautiful article that you wrote with her son suffering from a mystery illness that talks about finding HBOT. What was that experience like for you with three kids just trying to solve the issues with their their health issues and and finding these kind of, I I don't know if obscure is the right word, but non-traditional treatments and having them work? Definitely. I mean, it's interesting because I am very much a product of both traditional uh, medical care and non-traditional. So, you know, on the traditional side, I, when I was a lawyer, I represented Georgetown Hospital and its doctors against medical malpractice lawsuits. I'm very much a believer in sort of your traditional medical health care and and well-versed in how to figure out medical research in the NIH databases and all that kind of stuff. On the other side, though, my dad was an acupuncturist in Korea. I have witnessed things that are considered sort of obscure and, you know, sort of homeopathic medicine as well as energy medicine really working well for me. Like to this day, whenever I have a sty, I do this one thing that my dad taught me, which is very bizarre that like, but I swear to God it works. And when I showed my kids, they were like, mom, you are just so strange, (laughs) but they've now become believers in it too. You know, so to say that I've been very open-minded all along about all these things that I discuss in my novel. When I encountered some of these more obscure, non-traditional experimental things, you know, I always made a point to ask my kids, more traditional doctors, whether that was safe. You know, that was always like my baseline. But once they said, yes, it's safe, but it's probably not going to do anything. It's sort of like homeopathic medicine being water, essentially, chemically speaking. If it really doesn't work, then it's just water. So it's harmless. But if it does work, then, you know, as long as it's not going to cause any harm, what is the harm? The harm is just wasting your time and your energy and your money. So as long as you're aware that that's where you stand, then I was always sort of like, okay, I'm game to try it again, as long as I have the blessing of my kids' doctors. And so having said that, you know, when I discovered HBOT for um, my oldest, who was suffering from ulcerative colitis and nothing else was working, and he was crying after every meal, not gaining weight, and he's four years old, that's the kind of thing where you go, you know what, there are a couple of studies. It's not FDA approved, but it is being explored. And there is a reason why something like this might work for that condition. Then I read through the studies and did the research and decided, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and take a chance. And because I didn't think that it was going to be harmful in any way. So that's the kind of, you know, calculation that I made with my kids. And that's the kind of calculation that I think a lot of parents 
you know, make when their kids are suffering from something that I can't, that they can't do anything about that. Mm -hmm. There isn't like an easy medicine that they can just give to their kids that can sort of make everything go away. Yeah. I'm with you. I agree. I think doing both traditional and non-traditional is great. And just exploring these different avenues. Uh, Certainly my son has attention focused issues and I felt so helpless. It's, it's never as simple as that. You know, I think it's, it's more an exploration and doing the research and trying different things and eventually finding a thing that works for your kid. Yeah. And also I think, you know, the other thing that helped for me is that because I was home and because I didn't have, you know, like a, an external job that I had to do, I had the luxury of time to be able to do all of the research. Also, because I was used to doing medical research, you know, on behalf of my clients, and that had been part of my previous, you know, career experience, I could do things like look up what is the function of some of the supposedly alternative treatments. And if they they made sense to me from a chemical, biochemical perspective, then I felt much more comfortable trying that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think it's a a thing. Okay. The myth of the good mother. I love this. And and because I think we all feel it. One of the things that you said in the interview is, you know, we just have enormous pressure on mothers to be perfect. Those, and that certain thoughts can make us feel shame because we're frustrated. And that in society, we don't really accept that no matter what the mother is facing, if they've got an ill child or something like that. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that. The myth of the good mother and how we want to shake that up. Yes, definitely. Oh, I'm so glad that you brought that up. That's one of my favorite things. You know, it's so funny because when you write, tell everybody, you don't really write, or at least I don't write, thinking of, you know, the theme that you want to hit. You know, you don't go, okay, this is the theme of the book. You sort of think about the characters, you think about the situations that they're in, the conflicts and how they're going to try to get out of them. And then the theme emerges, emerges. And I think the the myth of the good mother is one of these things that I didn't even realize was a theme in my book. Um, I did think of my book as dealing with parenting sacrifice. I started hearing that more and more in reviews and things like that. And as I thought about it and some of the scenes that the readers were saying were resonating with them, which were about the mothers um, confessing to each other some of the really dark thoughts that sometimes mothers can have when they're, you know, having bad days or whatever. I just thought this is exactly why I wanted to write this book because I wanted to show mothers who are good people, but who are human and who have these moments and how sometimes these situations, the society, the community, looking at other people's kids and being jealous of them, all that kind of stuff can come together to make you have thoughts and possibly even say things that you might be just so ashamed of and beat yourself up for for so long. And I think so much of that is because we do have this expectation that mothers are and should be just completely all sacrificing and saintly and completely saintly and just 
want to sacrifice all of themselves. Mothers do, do make so many sacrifices. And that's one of the things, parents do, you know, fathers do also. And that's one of the things that I really explore in my novel for all, all sorts of people in different situations, including the fathers. But I think what really separates the mothers is that from the fathers is that there is this gender expectation that women are going to not only make the self the sacrifices, but be happy about it and never complain about it, never even think of that as a burden, which I think is just ridiculous. ridiculous. And, I, <laughs> and, and I think that's why so many of us are so um, reticent to actually like talk about this, you know, with each other, with some of my closest friends, I've talked you know, really openly about some of the stuff, but mostly I haven't. And, and I know that my friends haven't either because it is just considered so shameful. So I really, really hope that that's one of the things that books and stories like mine can expose is that we don't all, we're not all grateful to make all these sacrifices that we're supposed to make. We do do it. And of course, we would all choose to do that over again, even if we had to. But that doesn't mean that there isn't resentment there. Mm -hmm. And I think the more we can talk about that, and the more we can see that other people feel the same way, and we're not all monsters, that that's hopefully what you know we're striving for. Yeah, I, I love that. And I agree because it's, it should be okay for us to say at times, we're not okay with what we're dealing with. And that doesn't make us a bad mom. It is this idea that we have to be perfect. A great line in the book, she grudged and envied and coveted and downright hated them. These women with their exquisitely normal kids. Hmm. Yeah, And that should be an okay emotion for a mom to have who's struggling with a child that's struggling in, in a tremendous way. And there isn't yeah. an easy fix like we talked about. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Here's a big topic too. <laughs> and one that you've written about and you wrote, I was so moved by this March 23rd in the Washington post of this year and the title I've experienced anti-Asian harassment and written it into my novels and I'm not ready to move on. And we're not ready for you to move on from this either. I think there's so much to learn. This is a big theme in your book. And I think it's a big thing for you as well. Let me, let's just start here because I want to understand when you hear China virus, how does that make you feel? Oh, it's just, I actually um, wrote about that in a scene in my novel that I'm working on right now, actually. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a story of a biracial family. And one of the characters hears that or is thinking it actually, she, she hears something more subtle but she thinks of it and how it's related to that. Yeah, it's so upsetting to sort of think of things like that because I think there is so much anti-Asian animus right now. And I think people don't really see it or recognize it because Asians are sort of the invisible minority. And I think that's why the Atlantic shootings the Atlanta shootings were so devastating to a lot of us. And because it was sort of the culmination point of this violence that so many of us experience and see and hear about, but that sort of the mainstream media and a lot of people don't seem to sort of recognize as a problem. And so, and I do think that sort of, you know, things like, 
the China virus and things like that, that just really brought it to a head. It's It's been there and sort of the sexualization and fetishization of Asian women has been there for a long time. And that's something that I also talk about in Miracle Creek as well. And it's the kind of thing that I think, you know, the more we can sort of talk about, the more Asians can come out and sort of recognize and hopefully educate people that that does go on. Because I think so many people sort of say, oh, but you know, like you're not really a minority, but we are. And, and we hear that all the day. We hear like very subtle things all the time that make us feel like we're not you know, really, truly a part of the society and that we don't deserve to be. And those are the kinds of things that I think lead to people committing violence and thinking that they can get away with it. Yeah, there's been a string of it in the Bay Area. I mean, it's been everywhere, but it's so heartbreaking. And even just listening to you, just to to feel like in some way you're detached from a society that you belong in. And how, so how do you think we fix this? Is it more conversations? Obviously you're writing about it. What, what do you think are some of the things that we can do to kind of bridge this gap in a way? Yeah, no, I think it is. I think it's happening. There's a lot of reckoning going on in our society right now, which is great um, in terms of, you know, sort of racial and gender issues, not only just the blatant things. I think that's one of the things that's been really hard is that a lot of people think that if something isn't blatant, you know, like somebody being called a name or being beaten up and being told, well, I'm beating you up because you're black, yellow, whatever it is, that that means that it's not racist. And and I think it's just learning sort of how some of these more subtle things can be just as harmful Mm -hmm. and that that sort of subjective view of harm from the victim's perspectives is actually what should sort of be guide the guiding point for people's actions. Mm -hmm. So I think it's all of those things. I think it's a lot more education, a lot more, yeah, reading of stories that leads to empathy, just keeping the open mind that, yeah, it's just because it doesn't resonate in a particular way because it's not blatant doesn't mean that it's not being felt that way by the rest of us. Yeah. So when you think, when you say subtlety, there's a line in your book, chapter 16, to Koreans being sparing with words signaled gravitas, but to Americans, verbiage was an inherent good akin to kindness or courage. Is that kind of the thing that you're talking about? Just like the cultural nuances and differences? Yeah, the cultural nuances and differences, but also like things like there's another chapter, a character named Janine, who is who's a, a doctor. She goes to her white fiance's grandparents' house and where all his cousins are. They're all white and, you know, Southern. And one of them says something about how, oh, oh, I hear from, you know, your fiance that you're at the top of your class, but of course you are like, you know, I knew some Asian, I knew some people like you, you know, and they were so wicked smart. And then his wife says, oh, well, half of Berkeley is Asian now. And not that there's anything wrong with that. And it's like stuff like that, where you think, oh, it's flattery to say all Asians are good at math. 
oh, Asian women are just so subservient. It's just so nice that they're so they follow the rules and they're they're not troublemakers in any way. And, you know, like just because something is considered good or not that that they think that that means that stereotyping as long as the stereotype is something that's supposed to be good that that's okay well no that's not okay because stereotyping is stereotyping you're lumping people together and sort of like characterizing people based on the way that they look and that's that's racism that is that's like the definition of racism so it's like stuff like that such an important and obviously very timely topic. So thank you for yeah. writing about it and being so yeah. open about your experiences. Okay, so what's next for you? I know we're rounding out here with your second book and please don't do a sixth career unless you really, really want to, but I think you need to write more books. <laughs> I am. So what the wonderful thing about fiction and the wonderful thing about writing is that you can go, you don't have to sort of stay with one thing. And so, and the great thing about Miracle Creek is that it wasn't like a particular genre. It was so many different things that came together. And so I think I have the freedom to sort of go off and explore lots of different things. And luckily I have an amazing agent and an amazing editor who are very, very open to my wanting to do whatever I want to do, even if it's not, you know, another courtroom drama, which the second book is not, you know, and things like that. So, so I, I, yeah, which is really awesome because I know a lot of um, writers who are sort of pigeonholed in one thing and, and maybe they're happy being that way. But for me, I'm just, I just don't want to write the same thing over and over again. And so I want to like my third book, that I'm already sort of eyeing because I'm, you know, of course, trying to procrastinate from writing the second book (laughs) um, that I'm supposed to be working on is uh, my third book is going to be like a sci-fi dystopian thing. Um, So yeah, but my, the second one is um, it's, it's, it's got a mystery component to it as well. Like Miracle Creek did, but it's definitely not a courtroom drama. It's not like a whodunit or anything like that, or even a how done it or why done it like Miracle Creek was. And the mystery, it's called Happiness Quotient. And the mystery is that the novel um, begins when a 13-year-old boy who is non-speaking, so he has something called Angelman syndrome, goes on a walk and it's the beginning of the pandemic with his stay-at-home dad, like they do every day, but only the 13-year-old boy returns home. And because he can't talk, he can't tell the family or the authorities what happened to the dad. So, you know, there is that mystery element, but really just like with Miracle Creek, the mystery sort of a way to get you in and to explore sort of the lives of the characters. And, And so we are following this family along as they are trying to figure out how to cope without their anchor, their stay-at-home dad, who is sort of the center of their lives, and the mother and the older siblings who are fraternal twins, one boy, one girl, are trying to figure out not only sort of, you know, the mystery of where, what could have happened to their dad, but also trying to help their brother to communicate and find his voice as well. Wow. Yeah. You're really, really good at this. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> you I'm just really, are. Really excited. Yeah, I'm really excited. I just loaded this morning. It took me like an hour, but I loaded onto my Kindle the first half of my novel. And I am, after, after this is over, I'm going to take this martini and I'm going to read it from cover to cover and try to figure out what happens in the second half, which I have no idea so far. So. Oh, Angie, you're such a dear. Well, you had me at Martini. <laughs> we share a love of our, of our favorite drink. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. I so, so appreciate it. And thank you for all you share. And I think, yeah, the world is better from learning from your stories. Thank oh, you. thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Thank hey. you. It is really hard to put into words all the things that Angie Kim represents because it is so many. Most of all, I admire Angie's honesty, her openness to break down parts of life that could be seen as on the fringe and humanize those experiences because they are just people living authentically. One of the coolest things is to watch someone move through life, trying new things and finding the work that suits them best. I think far too often we assume we should know what we wanna be out of the gate. But as Angie demonstrates, each adventure influences the next. Keep writing, Angie, I know you will. Until next time, stay curious and be well.